Okay, we're already on part four. I anticipate that we'll spend a couple more weeks in the Psalms, and then um, SD and I will be going on vacation for a couple of weeks, so we'll have a couple of Wednesday night breaks, and uh, then we'll pick up a new topic later in, toward the middle of summer. So tonight, what I want to do is I want to talk a little bit about uh, the Psalms as poetry. And so here's what we have talked about so far about the diversity, the age, the anonymity, and how much of the Psalms has some ambiguity to it. But tonight I want to talk a little bit about uh, what you're looking at when you read a Psalm in terms of poetry. So tonight we're going to look at a few different Psalms just for illustration. Some of them I'll have on the screen here, some of them. I will have you take a look in your Bible. But uh, as we think about poetry, we have to think in terms of a whole different structure of poetry for Hebrew uh, poetry, because it's not really built on uh, meter. It's not really built on rhyming. Sometimes it will be built on wordplay a little bit. Uh, some of the Psalms have a little bit of acrostic to it, but if we come to the Psalms with a preconception that as poetry, it is something that uh, kind of sounds like English, then we're going to miss the point. Yet, I think we can still feel a little bit of a rhythm uh, to many of the Psalms. When you read it, even though it's not built on uh, rhythm and rhyme per se, it does have a cadence to it that, and that's what makes it quite beautiful. So um, biblical, biblical scholars who have done a lot of research about on the Psalms have uh, not been able to break the code in terms of what is it that is definitive for uh, Hebrew poetry. Uh, you can't count lines. Um, there's some patterns, but some of them don't hold to those patterns at all. So the thing to keep in mind about the Psalms is as poetry, uh, they do not use a lot of words. So when you look at a Psalm, there's some short uh, verses there. And when you look at a Psalm, you'll find that there's a lot of white space around it compared to narrative when you read other parts of the Bible. So when you open the Psalms, you know that you're in poetry just by the way it looks on the printed page. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that uh, Hebrew, number one, does not have a huge vocabulary compared to Greek in the New Testament. But Poetry usually is just a few lines and that make up some of the verses. And so it's very economical in the way it kind of uses the language and so forth. So word usage in Hebrew poetry is such that you're not going to find uh, things as they are written in English songs. Um, you're not going to find phrases like it was a dark and stormy night or on a dark desert highway, cool wind in my hair, the smell of Kalidas rising up in the air. You're not going to find that type of description at all. What you're going to find is uh, just this short 
the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. It's very short, very succinct, very rhythmic at times. When you look at the Psalms um, and you see the, uh, the, the way it's written, I think part of it is intended for us to kind of slow down with it and to think about it. And I think that's why you find that word selah, S-E-L-A-H, in, in a lot of the Psalms. For example, I'm here at Psalm 23. It doesn't use that, but in Psalm 24, it does. So you read down six verses and it says selah, which is kind of like a rest. Stop and think about it. Um, just contemplate what you have just read. Now, in some translations, um, you can find a little bit of rhythm to it, especially in uh, like the King James Version. Uh, the King James translation has a much more of a rhythm in the poetry than, let's say, the New American Standard Bible. I don't know a whole lot of people that are using New American Standard Bible translations anymore, but it's very literal and it is very wooden in the way it's translated. But the NIV, which is a common translation, kind of sits between those two. So you have the language you, you can understand a little bit better uh, in the NIV than, let's say, the King James Version. But it does try to keep a little bit of the cadence and rhythm of it um, so you can appreciate the beauty of the movement of the poetry. So uh, those are just some initial observations on poetry. Do you have any thoughts or questions or comments on that? Okay. So the one thing that scholars definitely think about when looking at the Psalms is this idea of parallelism. So the way Hebrew poetry works is there is usually one line that's followed by another line. So take a look here down at Psalm 13, verse 1 on the slide here. So line A says, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? And then the second line basically says the same thing, but it's in parallel. How long will you hide your face from me? So how long, O Lord, will you forget me? How long will you hide your face from me is two ways of kind of saying the same thing. However, even though there, uh, it is written in parallel fashion, it's not completely identical. So here you see in Psalm 13, verse 1, it says here, how long, O Lord, will you forget me? So he uh, is saying Yahweh has forgotten him in line A. How long will you hide your face from me uh, is written in, in the second line. So the first line is forgetfulness. It seems God has forgotten me. But the second line is added by saying, God, you're really hiding from me. That's a little bit different than being forgotten. So they're written in parallel, but sometimes they're not identical. And so here, the full force of Psalm 13, verse 1 is, it seems at times God has forgotten me. It seems at times God cannot be found because he's hiding from me. So here you see up at the top, 
you have A and B, which is like a line that is written. And then in a parallel fashion, you have A and B, but sometimes there's a little bit extra information that is added. And I'll give you an illustration of that in a minute. So you have A and B, but the second line can be A, B, and C. So the break in the line is that visual reminder here. Um, and the way it's written here is uh, one, I'm at Psalm 24, verse one, where it says the Lord, uh, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, comma, the world and all who live in it, semicolon. So the complete thought in verse one of chapter 24 is everything belongs to God. The earth belongs to God. The world belongs to God, but also, do you see, it, it could stop there, and all who live in it. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, uh, and then it's amplified a little bit by not just repeating the word uh, world as it is in representation by the earth in the first line, but all who live in it, not just exist in it, but make a living in it and thrive in it and that type of thing. So there's a little bit of difference there. Does that make sense? So it complements it and it adds to it just a little bit. Any thoughts? Okay. So you have some different types of parallelism, a line repeated by another line, and that's the common feature. And sometimes they can appear synonymous. Uh, the two cola appear to be saying the same thing, but as I just mentioned in Psalm 13, verse one, sometimes there can be minor differences where there is a difference between God forgetting and God hiding. So the first one, line A, is passive. It's like, oh, I forgot where line B is very active. I'm intentionally hiding from you. So let's look at another one. And um, a synonymous, a parallelism is sort of like an echo, line one being repeated back. So uh, go over to Psalm 19 and look at verses one and two. And this is a pretty familiar uh, line from the Psalms. The heavens declare the glory of God, semicolon. There's the first cola. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. So they're synonymous, but yet they're stated in a different way. The heavens, represented by the second line, the skies, declare the glory of God, is stated by in parallel to proclaim the work of his hands. So it complements it by... Uh, stating it again, and it's one of those uh, lines that's kind of repeating uh, the first line, but sometimes it will, as I just showed you in Psalm 13, verse 1, it will have a little bit of difference to it. Does that make sense? The second type of parallelism is antithetical, and that is a contrast. So if you were to say synonymous parallelism is sort of like using the word and the heavens declare the glory of god and the skies proclaim the work of his hands in antithetical construction a and b are in contrast uh with each other so they're opposites 
Um, and so here's one from Psalm 1, verse 6. For the Lord, oops, for the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So these are in parallel. It's stating one about righteous people and one about wicked people. And here's the key word. If the synonymous uh, parallelism could be defined sort of like using the word and, the antithetical parallelism is uh, represented by the word but. Okay, it's going to tell you something different. So uh, there's another one. Uh, you don't have to uh, turn here, but I'm going to read it for you. Psalm 73, verse 26. It'll give another illustration of it. Psalm 73, verse 26. It says here, My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart. So the parallel there is the heart, whatever is representing the heart. My heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart. So there's the contrast, okay? I might not be able to hold it together, but God will help me to hold it together. Does that make sense? Any thoughts? One more. And it's defined by scholars as synthetic. Now, what that what is meant by that is it adds um it adds information but it's it's a kind of a catch-all because the uh, this parallelism changes a little bit um and the deeper you get into psalm studies they subdivide this synthetic category into a bunch of minor ones we're not going to bother with but Here's what synthetic is uh, here. Uh, it is uh, defining the relationship a little bit. So um, here in, uh, in the illustration, you have in Psalm 113, verse 3, from the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. So it completes the thought. Um it's in parallel because if it's only one line from the rising of the sun to its setting, that's an incomplete thought. So you need the second line to complete the thought. Well, what do we do from the rising of the sun to the setting? Ah, the name of the Lord is to be praised. So it's completing the information is giving to us an additional set of uh, information that completes the thought. So the second line is adding to the first one, okay? It's incomplete without it. Now, this is a much looser relationship in the Psalms because that second line can go in any direction, really. So in Psalm 24, uh, verses 3 and 4, you have an illustration of this, and it says here, Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? Then verse four completes that first thought. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to an idol or swear by what is false. So you have a parallel in verses three and four. Who is it that can enter into the presence of the Lord? The first line asks the question twice. 
who can ascend the hill of the Lord, who can stand in his holy place. And then verse four answers it. He who has clean hands and a pure heart and does not lift up his soul to an idol or swear by what is false. So those two lines are in parallel, but it's synthetic. You need both to complete the thought. Okay, I'm going to give you one more uh, of this. Psalm 77, verse 17. Now this one is, is synthetic in the sense that it's giving a description, but you need all three colas of the... Um, of the verse to kind of complete the thought. So uh, I'll start in verse 16 because it, it says, the waters saw you, O God, the waters saw you and writhed, the very depths were convulsed. Now verse 17 says, the clouds pour down water, the skies resounded with thunder, your arrows flash back and forth. So what it's describing is a rainstorm, three components. Clouds pouring down water, the sound of thunder, thunder, and the arrows is lightning, okay? So you need all three lines to properly get the feel for the cloud, the atmosphere, and the lightning. And, um, and then it repeats down in verse 18, your thunder was heard in the whirlwind, your lightning lit up the world, the earth trembled and quaked. So it adds, that verse adds to it after you you get the sense that God is in control of the waters. Then there's the description of a thunderstorm in verse 17. And then that must have been quite a thunderstorm that he's describing because the thunder was heard above other wind and, and so rain and the lightning lit up the world. In other words, you know, we've had, we've seen rainstorms where, the lightning really does kind of illuminate the sky. And then the boom of the thunder, you can actually feel the earth trembled and quaked. Do you see what he's doing? He's using poetry to describe a rainstorm there, but it's synthetic in the sense that you need all these components to get the, the full feel of it. Some thoughts there? Okay, so there's been a lot of advances in understanding Hebrew poetry, and one guy by the name of Robert Alter uh, wrote a book called The Art of Biblical Poetry, and he talks about dynamic movement in uh, the poetry. And what he talks about is that even though things are written in parallels, there's no such thing as a true, unless you're using the exact same words, uh, a true parallel. Um, so you have here the idea of words overlapping a little bit in meaning, but what they are communicating can have some uniqueness to it. So um, hearing that, it can kind of drum up different feelings. So here's an example in Psalm 3, verse 7. It says here, uh, For you strike my enemies on the cheek. That's the first line. You broke the teeth of the wicked. Now, it seems to be saying the same thing. However, 
it is not identical because the second line really is much sharper. And, and um, that's kind of tongue in cheek, but you strike all my enemies on the cheek as if that could be a slap, but you know it's more than a slap because it breaks the teeth of the wicked. So it was more like a punch in the face. So here you have what uh, Robert Alter talks about, how different words um, bring different feelings to it. In other words, there's much more energy in that second line from Psalm 3, verse 7. And you can read, and if you slow down enough to recognize that they're in parallel, but they're not exactly the same, you get the, you get the feeling of the second line of the aggressiveness um, of, the, of the statement more so than the first line. Does that make sense? Here's another example, Psalm 135, verse 5. For I know that the Lord is great. Our Lord is above all gods. So in line A, the psalmist is stating of the greatness of God. But in line B, the psalmist is saying um, how great God really is. He's above all the other gods. So he's not just great in a general sense. He is stands head and shoulders above the other gods of the nations around them. So that's what Alter calls dynamic movement in the Psalms and in the poetry of the Psalms. Some thoughts there? Now, there's another element here that's kind of interesting. Um, there's a dynamic called chiasm. And a chiasm is something that is written in such a way that the parallels are not right next to each other, but they're written kind of in an inverted fashion. So um, maybe a, a way of saying that is uh, a, it's kind of a sequence of, uh, uh, of components that's repeated in an inverted order. So they can actually get quite large, but for our purposes here, Psalm 137 verses five and six says, if I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand wither. Let my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you. So that's verses five and six. So line A is in parallel to line A line B in parallel to line B. So here, what you have, if I forget you, O Jerusalem, is in parallel down to if I do not remember you. And then let my right hand is in parallel to let my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. Now, that's a very short chiasm. Sometimes a chiasm can be a whole chapter or uh, pretty lengthy. So it would go A, B, C, D, E, F, G, you know, and then backwards, G, F, E, D. Are you following what I'm saying? The parallels will, uh, can be quite extensive. So um, the only way you would know that is if you really, really look at these Psalms or other parts of the scripture for that matter, really closely to find that, um, that dynamic going on there. 
but it really is artistic in the way it's written because they are thinking not just of what they're writing here, but what they're going to write later that's going to be in parallel. And usually, if there's an uneven amount of these parallels, let's say you got A, B, C, D, E, and then you have D, C, B, A, the E, which is the odd number, is kind of usually the most important element of the psalm. So A to A, B to B, C to C, D to D, and E stands by itself. And that usually is the point that the author is really trying to emphasize. Okay. Does that make sense? Or are you, have I lost you there? That's technically called a chiasm. Now, I jumped over this second point here that sometimes in the poetry of the Psalms, there is just repetition. <clears throat> so in Psalm 136, um, the whole Psalm is written with uh, this repeated phrase. Um, let, uh, how this goes, let the, give thanks to the Lord, to the Lord for he is good. So 136, let me get there. Um, you have, if you look at it, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. Okay, but that's not the repeated line. The repeated line that goes through the whole psalm is his love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods. His love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. His love endures forever. Now, notice in the first three verses, what's the key uh, uh, ver uh, the key uh, phrase that is used there. Well, on the first line, it's thanks in verse one, two, and three, give thanks, give thanks, give thanks. And in the second line, his love endures forever. There's a little bit of difference in completing that first line, give thanks to the Lord for he's good, for he's the God of gods, and he's the Lord of lords. But the, it begins the same way, and it finishes the same way. And you go down through 26 verses uh, and what it does is it will begin to tell the story of Israel. If you jump down to verse 10, he starts talking about the deliverance from Egypt to him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, uh, his love endures forever and brought Israel out from among them, his love endures forever. So it's not general, it gets very specific. Um, so it begins with a generality then it talks about creation a little bit. Uh, then it talks about deliverance from Egypt uh, and then on into the uh, wilderness wanderings down into verse 16, that God's love is still enduring and so forth against some of the battles against some of their enemies like uh, Sion of the Amorites and Og of Bashan. And, uh, and, but yet the repeated phrase or the poetic element of it is his love continues to endure forever. So that's just another literary convention that uh, sometimes will appear uh, in the Psalms. Any thoughts, comments? All right. Sometimes, um, uh, the Psalms have an acrostic element to it. So go over to Psalm 119. 
Now, this is the longest psalm in the Psalter. And it uses the Hebrew alphabet. Um, and the Hebrew alphabet is represented with, uh, you'll see as you look at it, the funny looking letters is Hebrew there. So Aleph, right before verse one, is the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Then what you have is uh, eight verses that are all beginning. Each um, each verse begins with uh, the letter Aleph. Then you go down to Bet, beginning right before verse nine. And then you have another eight verses, all beginning with the letter Bet. So it's sort of like, if you're using English as an example, you'd have eight lines that all begin with the letter A, eight lines that all begin with the letter B, eight lines that all begin with the letter C. So you get the idea there. And that's what's happening in Psalm 119. So by the time you get through the whole alphabet of the Hebrew language, uh, you'll find eight times the amount of letters in the Hebrew alphabet. And I if I remember correctly, I'd have, have to count them up. I think there's 24. But um, anyways, that's how this is structured. I mean, now think of the ingenuity and creativity of this psalm to be able to take that letter, have it all be the same length under that one letter, move on to the next letter, have eight lines, uh, and the theme this is all about the Torah. Psalm 119 is all about the love of God's law. So you'll notice it begins, verse 1, Blessed are they whose ways are blameless, who walk according to the law of the Lord, the Torah. Jump down to verse 9, that's the second subset. How can a young man keep his way pure? By living according to your word, i.e. the law. Jump down to verse 17, uh, you get to the third letter, Gimel. Do good to your servant and I will live. I will obey your word, the law. Again, it's the same theme. The fourth letter is Dalit, uh, verse 25. I am laid low in the dust. Preserve my life according to your word. Then you have the letter Hey in verse 33. It says, teach me, O Lord, to follow your decrees. what's That's another way of talking about the law, the decrees of God. One more, but you could go through the whole psalm this way. Uh, you have the, the letter Vav, and it's in verse 41. May your unfailing love come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your promise. Your promise where? Well, what he has in mind is the law. I know that because if you look at verse 43, it says, do not snatch the word of truth from my mouth, for I have put my hope in your laws. So if you look through that whole, um, through the whole psalm, it's written in an acrostic type of format where it's using the letters as the key organizing principle to the psalm. That makes sense? Or have I lost you on that? All right. So now we're going to move away from that idea of parallelism 
And let's just talk just for a moment about imagery that you find in the poetry. So I think all of us are probably pretty familiar in English with the idea of metaphors and similes. And that's true in Hebrew poetry as well. So I started off tonight when I said, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Um, now, is that a metaphor or is that a simile? Any ideas? The key here is a simile uses the word like, L-I-K-E. So if the simile, if it was a simile, it would say the Lord is like a shepherd. But it says uh, this is a metaphor. The Lord is my shepherd. Now you're being forced to kind of think through what a shepherd does, and then of course the rest of the psalm tells you some of the those components. But those are two things that you use. And believe me, if you really wanted to get into it, there's all kinds of other uh, literary uh, elements. You know, you have similes and metaphors and and this and that that uh, could be be looked at in the poetry of the Psalms. But I think this is the most uh, dominant and the most familiar to us is to look at the metaphors and similes that are using imagery to compare one thing to another. So God is being compared in Psalm 23 to a shepherd, okay? So we're then to contemplate how is God like a shepherd? Then the rest of the Psalm really kind of tells us a little bit. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. So you, you look at it and you kind of go, okay, what does that mean in day-to-day -day life? What does it mean that he makes me lie down in green pastures, leads me beside quiet waters and restores my soul? Does he give me uh, does he give me peace in the middle of difficult circumstances? Does he give me rest at night when I go to bed? What I mean, you're forced to kind of think through this metaphor and how it applies. And then it goes on. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And even though you might not know exactly how to equate this to contemporary life, the beauty of it alone, though, speaks. And that's why so many uh, times uh, in, in funeral services, I would say 99% of the time, this particular psalm is read either at the service or by the graveside because the cadence and the imagery of it somehow speaks to our heart. And the imagery alone is what compels this assurance and um, and comfort and those type of things, even if we don't know exactly how these different points of the Lord being a shepherd is applied in the 21st century, it is such that yet it speaks to me. It somehow helps me. It somehow uh, comforts me and, and those type of things. So um, does that make sense, what I'm saying there? The imagery alone has has a potential and pop to it. Any thoughts? 
Okay, go over to Psalm uh, 42. Now, this is another kind of familiar psalm. Um, in fact, there's one of the contemporary choruses uh, that was sung hmm, 15 years ago. As the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs after you. That comes from Psalm 42. Now, let's look at it a little bit closer. So let's think about this imagery for a minute. Verse one and two, as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? So stop there for a moment. So the imagery here is that water is life-sustaining. And of course, we can't live without water. And we need to keep drinking water. But what's interesting here is as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for God. So now the commonality in that is pants. The deer pants and my soul pants. But there's kind of a transposition that's taking place. To pant for something is is an emotion in some ways. So here, an emotion is being applied to a deer. It's a human emotion uh, to pant for something, to long for something, to desire something. And the psalmist kind of projects that onto the deer. Now a deer can thirst, when it's thirsty, it goes and it drinks water, but it doesn't, well, at least as far as we know, it, it doesn't have the emotional component like we talk about when we talk about panting. So it's interesting that the two are flip-flopped here. It could, probably could read, as the deer thirsts for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, and my soul uh, thirsts for God, or we could say my soul uh, pants for God. Uh, my soul longs for God uh, because it's an emotional type of thing. And and that's kind of completed in verse two when it says, when can I go and meet with God? This, there's this aching inside of me to meet with God. So it's interesting how some of the imagery here is uh, transposed a little bit. The deer that thirsts for water is panting for it. And we human beings who uh, uh, pant for uh, God, um, actually it, the, it, its image is that of thirsting like a deer. So the two are kind of in parallel with each other. And uh, the crossover effect, I think, as you can see on the slide there, is the deer longs like a human being and the human thirsts like a deer for God. So it's just a powerful way of remembering. It's a powerful, powerful way of communicating. So you look for those images that's in these poems and you try to contemplate them. Um, you try to let them work over in your heart and mind a little bit. And of course, you could go on in this Psalm and it continues. My tears have been my food day and night while men say to me all day long, where is your God? So my tears, well, you wouldn't associate tears with food, 
but you have to eat every day. And this guy is saying, it's as if this was what I was feeding on every day, my sorrow, my pain, my grief. And what and the parallel to that then is as a synthetic uh, piece of poetry is what's causing and vexing this emotion in him? Well, men or people are saying to him, where is your God? So he's being taunted. He's being made fun of uh, those type of things. Um, And then it says these things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I used to go with the multitude leading to the procession to the house of God, that is to the temple, with shouts of joy and thanksgiving among the festive throng. That's gone now. Okay, is this a post-exilic psalm? Is it talking about what he used to have, but he no longer has? So, you know, when you're reading, you have to do do a little bit of thinking um, to kind of get to the point. Some thoughts? Or have I lost you and you're ready to say, please move on. (laughs) Okay, this might interest you a little bit more. So some of the imagery is quite fascinating. So I want to talk to you about sea monsters and dragons. Okay. So some of the Psalms keep referring to creatures that use a term uh, that can be either uh, translated as a monster or in some cases a dragon. So this is a cultural thing. Um, water is always kind of seen as, as a source of chaos. Now, the reason is, I think the Hebrew people were not a seafaring uh, group of people, and the oceans scared them. Uh, and what you find is the mythology is the chaos is sort of like the waters of the ocean that can be powerful and uncontrollable. And there was the belief that there were these creatures that lived in the waters. Um, And what we find is that some of the different translations uh, can use Uh, different um, imagery. Sometimes it's a dragon, sometimes it's sea monster. Here you see here, uh, the new revised standard version says the great sea monsters rather than uh, like in the NIV, great creatures of the sea. So the NIV is a little bit misleading here. Great creatures of the sea is not talking about whales. It's not talking about sharks. It's not talking about hippos. Uh, It's this idea of the great sea monsters is something akin to the mythical creatures that all people in that day and age believed in and felt brought chaos into the world. So a sea monster usually is bad. uh, And here, you have a parallel in Babylonian culture in the creation account Enuma Elish, the goddess Tiamat is considered a water god, and she is what brings chaos uh, to the waters. So it's a it's an image that is um, kind of it it translates into different cultures. They all kind of 
believed that the waters represented chaotic uh, situations and that what is causing that chaos. It's some type of huge sea creature or monster that did it. So I want you to turn to Psalm 104. Let's illustrate this a little bit. Again, this is imagery that's being used, but this is also a cultural belief uh, back in the day as well. So in Psalm 104, it begins with basically creation. Verse 1 starts to give an account for creation. O Lord, my God, you're very great. You're clothed with splendor and majesty. He wraps himself in light as with a garment. And he stretches out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of the upper chambers on their waters. He makes the clouds his chariot and rides on the wings of the wind. Now, if you keep reading in this creation account uh, of the psalmist, after you kind of work through the creatures that are on the land, like verse 14, he makes grass grow for the cattle and plants for man to cultivate. You get down to verse 24. And when you get to verse 24, it's fascinating. It says, how many are your works, O Lord? In wisdom, you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. There is the sea, vast and spacious, teeming with creatures beyond number, living things both large and small. And then all of a sudden, you are introduced to something that... Um, that is is singled out verse 26 there the ships go to and fro and the the leviathan which you formed to frolic there so the leviathan is an interesting phrase so it was considered to be some type of sea monster now i i think here in the 21st century we kind of say well what what creature lives in the sea that could be represented by this name Leviathan? Um, and I think different suggestions have been thrown around. But what you have is, again, a cultural thing that's represented in the imagery of this psalm. And it's here you, you see this word pop up. Now, the word Leviathan is represented in the book of Job, and it's represented here in the Psalms, and it was also, as you can see by this picture here, believed to be a creature that had teeth, and it looks more like a dragon than anything else. This is one of the artist's renditions of the, what this possibly looked like. Now, the question is, is this literal? Was there a literal creature like that? Probably not, but that's what they believed it to be, that all the chaotic waters, the hurricanes, and all the terrible storms that arise on that big of a body of water can be represented in this idea of a creature that stirs the waters. And um, here it's just mentioned kind of in passing that God creates this creature. Uh, he does so to... Uh, because he enjoys what he has created and the Leviathan frolics in the ocean and that type of thing. However, if you go over to Psalm 74, it has deeper meaning to it. So 
go over to Psalm 74, and here we're going to see the image pop up again. So in Psalm 74, this is a troubling psalm. It's one of those lament psalms that we talked about last week. It says here, why have you rejected us, O God? Why have you rejected us forever, O God? Why does your anger smolder against the sheep of your pasture? Remember the people you purchased of old? So it's going back to the Exodus and, and talking about them becoming a people, the tribe of your inheritance whom you redeemed. Do you remember Mount Zion where you dwell? That's, you know, the capital city of Jerusalem where the temple was. Turn your steps toward these everlasting ruins. All this destruction the enemy has brought on by the sanctuary. So it's talking about invasion. It's talking about defeat. Your foes roar in the place where you met us, and they set up their standards as signs. We win. You know, these are the the standards that reflect that they are um, that they are the victors. So it goes on and it goes on. And then if you get down to verse 12, this is fascinating. The psalmist says, but you, O God, are my king from of old. You bring salvation upon the earth. In other words, you have the ability to do something. Then verse 13, it was you who split open the sea by your power and you broke the heads of the monster in the waters. Now, what is it referring to? Referring to the Exodus, the nation going through the waters, and notice the description that is given to the Egyptians. They're like the monsters that uh, are broke in the waters. Then here's Leviathan that pops up again, verse uh, 14. It was you who crushed the heads of Leviathan and gave him as food to the creatures of the desert. Now, Leviathan is not this frolicking creature in the sea. He is associated with the enemies of the nation of Israel. So it takes on a different flavor here in Psalm 74, because this psalm is lamenting uh, the fact that they had been invaded by the Babylonians, and now yeah, God, it seems as God has deserted them. So, you know, for people that, as I say here on the slide, that suffered displacement, to remember this, that God at one time broke through and delivered them from slavery out of Egypt, it was a way of showing God's power and ability and the promise of salvation from this current set of circumstances that they find themselves in. But it uses this imagery of sea monsters again and Leviathan. <clears throat> now, in the book of Job, there's another creature that is mentioned called the behemoth. Um, so these two words, Leviathan and behemoth, are interesting words because we don't know exactly what it's referring to. All we can take in line is that the culture believed that these were powerful creatures that had the ability uh, to harm and injure uh, people, and in the case of the oceans, cause chaos as well. 
So you're doing a little bit of cultural study when you're reading the Psalms as well. And you have to kind of think through what it meant in their culture. And then the more difficult task is, how is this Psalm, like Psalm 74, how does this relate to us? How do we understand what it is communicating to us? Um, I mean, we didn't go through the Exodus. We weren't taken in exile to Babylon. But the overall message of it is, even in the most difficult situations, God can still deliver us. He has shown up, and he can show up again. So let me see if you have some thoughts about our subject matter tonight. And uh, what we're going to do is uh, we're going to stop the screen share and get everybody online here. You have some thoughts, some comments, some questions. So we just basically talked a little bit about parallelism, different types of parallelism, and imagery tonight. And then uh, what I want to do over the next couple of weeks, I want to see how the psalmist, uh, what is their understanding of God? Mm -hmm. And what is God like? And then we'll probably close this study with the counter um, point of man. What does the psalmist think of man? Now, in the case of man, in some of the psalms, he's represented as a prince. And in other psalms, he's represented as a worm. Interesting imagery that is used, these two diametrically different uh, images. But any thoughts about uh, anything, really? Any thoughts, questions that you have? Uh, you know, the panther thing is, panting is interesting. Because actually that's a non, what's the word I'm looking for? Dogs don't do that. Consciously, they do it. So they do it automatically. I'm trying to. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. you, there, there may be. I mean, maybe I'm reading too much into this, but maybe that's part of the meaning of it. Also, it's almost. It's almost instinctive. Uh, yeah, yeah. Or it's just yeah. It's something just that is, is intrinsic to what you're to, to living in some sense. Or um, there's a, there's a word I can't think of what's what it is, but um, like like breathing. You know. Like mm -hmm. it's, it's mm -hmm. not a consciously do like coughing. I'll, I'll sometimes cough to clear my throat. That's mm -hmm. uh, but, but breathing is something that is mm -hmm. panting. I, I think of panting of a, of a dog gets that same way. They don't mm -hmm. decide to do it or something. It's some, sort of a yeah. It's it's not a conscious decision, right? And so in mm -hmm. some sense, you could interpret that verse that way also. Like it's almost something that's part of you, if you know what I'm saying. That's a good point. That's a real good point. What are some of the subconscious type of things that we do as human beings that come automatically right that like a dog or a deer panting as well right. yeah that's good really good other thoughts no the best thing you can do with the psalms is just read them slow down and think about them a little bit because that's where the power of it is is in the contemplation of of the psalms and let it let yourself do a little bit of creative imagination as well your culture and the psalmist cultures don't line up but the imagery that is used still communicates 
And that's why so many people love the Psalms. Yeah. Any, uh, any last points you want to get to before we say goodnight? No? All right. Well, we'll close off at uh, this spot and um, we'll talk a little bit about um, the psalmist's understanding of God next week. Okay. All right. Thanks, Larry. Okay. Good you're night. welcome. Have a good, good one. Night. Okay, good night. Good night. Take care. Bye-bye.